0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
1: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
2: I took one political science class. Jared Kushner was in the class. I got to got a C. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Koston and Dara Lind. And uh, I've been been trying for weeks to get people to talk about Joe Biden. (laughs) Because he's the front runner and he doesn't really have policies. To analyze as of yet, no, because he does not. Yeah. we are living in. A but we
3: have finally, finally found a sufficiently weedsy angle on Joe Biden. Yes,
2: um, the weeds, as as I said uh, in the in the live show, I feel the weeds was on the wrong side of history, and Joe Biden is is proving that. Um, but so I have been very interested in the fact that Joe Biden he launched his campaign with a video. A lot of the video is like Barack Obama saying nice things about Joe Biden. Some of it is Joe Biden talking about America. Uh, but but a striking thing right at the beginning is Joe Biden says that we're going to look back on these four years as an aberrant time in American history, uh, but that if Trump gets another four years, it could fundamentally change the, the trajectory of the country. And what was interesting to me about this is that there was a very widespread backlash to this claim, not like among voters. Obviously, Biden's launch has gone very well. But like I I, I wrote an explainer on this and I was straining to find a positive column from any quarter of, you know, the pundit sphere on this. And the closest we got was Max Boot, who was like, Biden is totally wrong. But like, this is a good lie to win over swing voters with.
3: So I think it's worth kind of Putting this in the context of what Joe Biden thinks his advantage is in the Democratic field, right? Like we're already beginning to see one of the great like chicken or egg questions uh-huh. in electoral politics come up with. The line you, we've already started seeing that you're going to see a lot more of over the next several months is that Democrats like Joe Biden because electability is their preeminent concern. They mm-hmm. want a candidate who can beat Donald Trump. You should be, as an intelligent news consumer, always skeptical when this causality is presented in a specific direction, because there is substantial evidence from prior cycles that people select the candidate that they like and then take whatever that candidate says their advantage is or their key issue is as the thing that's most important to them. Like, in 2004, people re-elected George W. Bush. A lot of people went out and told exit pollsters that their biggest concern was moral issues. Was it that they genuinely were concerned about moral issues and— Wade Bush and John Kerry. No, George W. Bush was running on moral issues, and so that's why they did it. So, like, you should be a little bit, sure, you know, you should be a little bit skeptical. But that's why Joe Biden is making this aberration argument. He's saying. If we re-elect Donald Trump, if you guys screw up and you pick someone who isn't me, Donald Trump will win re-election and then we'll be set on a path that we can't control. But if you make the right choice and you pick me, I will beat Donald Trump. And then all of these terrible things that you've been feeling and experiencing over the last four years will fade into the background. It's something that only makes sense if you can treat Donald Trump as an aberrant figure rather than, yeah, we're caught in a fundamental. war over what the meaning of America is. And whoever you elect, even if they're elected president, is going to have to continue to fight this generational war.
4: I especially um, in Biden's announcements video, he also made a lot of references to what happened at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, in which a young woman, Heather Heyer, was murdered uh, by a alt-right activist. And it's interesting because I think the entire understanding of that, like, well, things like this didn't happen before Trump Or that, you know, we could get back to like the halcyon days of 2015 when life was easy and the June bugs were coming out all spring. And there's been a lot of conversation recently about how Biden's appeal to black voters, where he is by far the lead, where it's not so much about electability. It's about stability for a specific swath of black voters who are like. I want to hitch my wagon to a winner. I know who Joe Biden is. I recognize Joe Biden. I understand what he what he represents and what he represents is not is stability. Represents something that like a return to something that was like, akin to something I could get into. Maybe not the I you know I think that there's a concept of politics in which you're going for the best thing where I think so a lot of voters are thinking of the not the worst thing as the option.
2: Well, so yeah, to me, what was interesting about this whole thing is not even so much like what Biden said yeah. or why, but the extent of the the backlash against it, right? I tuned into the Pod Save America episode that John Favreau and Dan Pfeiffer recorded uh, that was right after Biden's announcement because – you know, an interesting question hanging around Biden's presidential aspirations for three or four years now has been that it's kind of seemed like the core Obama team that, like, put him on the ticket and clearly likes him is also not pushing him exactly as, right. as president. Yeah, there was
3: there – was some kind of census of, you know, ex-Obama staffers, and a surprisingly low number of them have signed on to the Biden right. campaign.
2: And so Favreau and Pfeiffer, you know, they, they speak very highly of Joe Biden. They work with Joe Biden. They like Joe Biden. They, to, to extent, defend him against some of his critics. But they were, like, really harsh about this aberration thing. and And it's telling because—so people on the left were very— Critical of this statement in part because it doesn't comport with left wing ideology, but also in part, as Darren was saying, the opposite, right? Like, left wing Democrats don't like Joe Biden, so whatever it is Joe Biden says, like they're going to they're, they're going <laughs> yes, to exactly. say they disagree with. Um, but but like the Positive America guys are not that right. Like they are not like fighting for control of the Democratic Party against the nefarious forces of the establishment. They are the nefarious forces of the establishment, and from their perspective, like this is wrong, that Trump is a symptom of the underlying disease of rot inside the Republican Party. Uh, Michael Tomaski wrote a version of this too, where he was very explicitly, he was like, someone's got to shake Joe Biden by the lapels and tell him like, this isn't the Republican Party of the 70s that he grew up with. And I agree with all of that. And like, I could go through it like chapter and verse, like why it is that like, Trump has only been made possible because of Mitch McConnell, how Trump has all these support from congressional Republicans. But I feel like Biden's campaign has revealed a number of seams between the kind of intellectual leaders of progressive politics in America, meaning broadly, like, like everyone from Pod Save America to Jacobin Magazine and the reality of Democratic voters. And this to me is one of them. It's like you have to think about politics really hard to not just immediately agree with the proposition that Donald Trump is an aberration in the history of American politics, like ask fucking anybody and they will tell you this, right? Like there and it's obvious, right? Like there is a reason like millions of people showed up to the Women's March in 2019 who did not necessarily show up at campaign rallies in the 2014 midterm. Right. Right? And like,
3: like, to be clear, and Matt, I'm not saying that you're saying this, but I think that it's often kind of elided. We're not talking about swing voters, right? We're not talking like, for the most part, we're not talking about people who used to be Republicans and who now are Democrats. We're talking about people who like... Democrats probably voted for Democrats, but like liked their Republican neighbors, were very on board with the kind of transpartisan Obama rhetoric. And now we're going, wait, the people who are currently in power are actively bad for America. And it's important for me to get involved in politics even between electoral sites.
2: Turnout turnout in the 2018 midterms, for example, was much higher than in the 2014 midterms, right? Democrats did Poorly in 2014, well in 2018. Some of that is swing voters, but a lot of it is like people who voted right. in 2008, 2012, 2016, but not in 2010, 2014 did vote in 2018. And like that's clearly about. Trump, like Mitch McConnell, didn't change in right. those intervening years.
3: I think that this that it's important to kind of not treat the backlash to Biden as a monotonic thing, right? Like the reason that Jacobin is mad at Joe Biden for saying this is not actually the reason that the Pod Save Dudes are mad at Joe Biden for saying this. The kind of Mitch McConnell gave us Trump argument is a a strategic and tactical argument, right? It's right. A, like, dear Joe Biden. You were in D.C. same as everybody else in 2009 and 2010. You watched very, yeah, very yeah, yeah. carefully what the Senate did to stymie the Obama uh, agenda. Surely you're not actually saying that those Republicans were models of bipartisanship and comedy. Um, but then there's the kind of ideological argument that the, the Jacobinites are making, that ki- that the leftist intellectuals are making, which is not solely about race. But I think race is a very easy lens to put on it. Right like for a long time there's been this argument put forward by elements of the left that no that the entire conservative agenda is more like it's being placed in a non-racial way, it's talking about small government, it's talking about fiscal responsibility, but that it is a natural extension of the kind of Lee Atwater politics of 50 years ago, and that Donald Trump is just making that subtext text, I think and that that it's that, important that, not that, to
4: split subtext and text. That is the key difference here, is yeah. because I think the thing with Trump is that he makes everything text yes. that was once subtext. Uh-huh. And so there was a fascinating piece uh, earlier this week from Axios that was talking about how Trump voters are very respond very well to Elizabeth Warren's policies but not to Elizabeth Warren Um, because, you know, they like the ideas that she's coming up with because there's a large swath of the kind of Trump voting electorate who are not conservatives, even if they think of themselves as being conservatives because they vote for Republicans. But Republican and conservative aren't the same thing. But I think that that, you know, that became text with Trump. This is something that's been going on for a long time, this kind of divide between Republican policies and the ideas of movement conservatism or even ideological conservatism. But it took Trump saying things about how, like, the Iraq war was a bad idea and there'll be health care for everyone. And you saw, like, conservative writers in 2015, 2016 being like but he's not a conservative and then you saw a lot of trump voters saying we don't fucking care right and so i think that that's the thing that i feel like biden is responding to is i think for a lot of people there's a sense that there was a time where you know yes democrats lost in the 2014 midterms badly but there was a sense that like that didn't matter it did matter obviously but if for people who are not us who do not think about these things all the time there was a time where they they didn't think about these things all the time too and i think that there's a sense that biden is like this return to stasis that Mm, i recognize that for a lot of people um on the left it's kind of like no that like that's what we need to be fighting against right. like Pe- people the-
3: having gotten woke should not go back to sleep well yeah, so-
4: <laughs> the, the rejection of the middle and the rejection of stasis and like Yeah, I think that there are a lot of people for whom, like, obviously that's anathema, but I can also imagine people who are like, there was a time where I didn't think about Mitch McConnell ever, and that was
2: nice. Well, so I want to put a pin in the sort of, like, left, like, policy critique Mm -hmm. of Make America 2015 again, and talk, (laughs) I think, I think about race, right? Because I I, I think this is important, because what Biden is exemplifying here in this, like, Aberration is like what people will mock as the hashtag resistance, yes, right? Absolutely. It, it, and absolutely. And some of the critique of resistance politics is that it is policy-wise shallow, that like America had large structural social problems in the years 2015, 2016 that simply returning to that time will not fix climate change, child poverty, whatever. Another aspect of the critique though is a sort of critique of the um, poetry of Americana, right? Mm -hmm. That I was raised in a kind of leftist household and I would not describe what that was like or what it meant in terms of any particular public policy ideas that my mom or dad had. I would describe it in terms of a lot of pushback against conventional narratives of American history. And so, like, the point of Howard Zinn's book is just that, like, a ton of terrible shit has happened in American history. Right, right. And so you say, there is nothing... Aberrational about Donald Trump being a racist, right? You talk about like the bombing of the Move headquarters in Philadelphia, whose anniversary we're on today, right? You talk about
4: it's the Move bombing anniversary today. Which yeah. Me, oh, we we need to scuttle the entire podcast <laughs> and just talk about Move. You, t- you talk and Bob about Marley.
2: you talk about how you know it's something Jane's written about how how California suddenly decided gun control was important after the Black Panthers uh, were, were arming themselves. You
3: talk you t- about like Andrew Jackson, Donald Trump's favorite president, who was like. Right. <laughs> An absolute genocide. Heir.
2: <laughs> exactly. You talk about how on Mount Rushmore we have slave owners. Yes. You talk about how Harry Truman, you know, not only nuked Hiroshima but then he nuked Nagasaki too for no reason. You talk about how even before there were formal restrictions on immigration from Latin America, we had this like the Chinese Exclusion Act. Ch- well, Chinese Exclusion Act, but like the like Operation Wetback. You know, yeah, just yeah, like yeah. just like totally extra legal roundups of of Mexican people and that like this this is america right, right. and that like right this was like, also
3: you may you may recall this debate kind of in a somewhat constricted form when hillary clinton respond to make responded to make america great again with america is already great right? exactly exactly there are definitely people who believe that michelle obama was right that there hasn't been a lot of
2: reason to be proud of america through much of its past exactly exactly and so to that Style of And this – but I think it's important to understand like this is a totally marginal view in American politics. Like every person who has ever won an election as far (laughs) as I am aware wins an election by talking about how America has overcome its challenges and appealing to the better angels of our nature and the high aspirations of founding principles and blah, blah, blah. But like a big thing among left-wing intellectuals is that like all of this is wrong and that like actually American history is soaked in bloodshed. And racism. (laughs) And Biden's invocation of that. Charlottesville thing, it's the purest form of this kind of like kitsch Americana, that like everything in American history was wonderful until the bad racist Donald Trump came. And even the example of the bad racist Donald Trump being bad is a white person being killed.
3: So I think that that is that, that Matt has laid out a very kind of compelling, well, like historiographical argument for why the aberration argument is wrong. I think that there is a that, – that there's something that I would love to see more explicit grappling with within this debate um, that I think is the strongest argument for the aberration, which is that in the kind of short-term history, the political history, like it's very – Tempting to point to, you know, the kind of explicit statements that Lee Atwater made about like, well, you can't say blacks and yeah, so you yeah, say yeah. welfare, that kind of thing. To talk about how the partisan debate we were having four years ago where the fundamental question was the size of government and not for whom and against whom that government was being weaponized. Yes, that debate does have intellectual roots in racial politics, but it was not an explicitly racial debate. It was not a debate that people who— aren't steeped in a half century of political history would have necessarily recognized as a racial debate. It could have been, it was invoked in various ways that like tapped into that. But even the people who were having that tapped into it for them didn't necessarily understand like, oh, I like this dude who talks about small government because when he says small government, he definitely means no help for black people. Um, There does appear to be a difference between subtext and text here, right? Like there's a reason that People are more concerned about hate crimes against non-white Americans now than they were four years ago. It's not that like the threat was exactly equal and white people are just more woke to it now. It's because there's a feeling that talking about this stuff explicitly serves an emboldening effect. There's a reason that like Richard Spencer is out here saying Charlottesville could not have happened if Donald Trump weren't elected. And part of that is that Richard Spencer wants to think, wants to like portray himself as being on the alt-right side of history. But like... It's also true that that kind of rhetorical opening up of we are going to make it OK to explicitly or to more explicitly talk about how there are real Americans and there are non-white people and those two never the twain shall meet like that does have impacts on society beyond policy. And so right. I think it's kind of important to distinguish what has America been in the past with what do we consider it okay to talk about in the present? What are the bounds of acceptable political debate? And in that regard, maybe it's not wrong to consider Donald Trump to be aberrational compared to Mitch McConnell.
4: I I think that, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about kind of the moving of the Overton window and this idea idea that like more it's not necessarily – acceptable because you'll notice that racists tend to couch their views with like racial realism or just really wanting getting very pent up about how no one will listen to their arguments and then but then their arguments are about like race and IQ. But I also think that there's something to be said for how something can be both factually true and politically false. Because I think Biden recognizes as well as anyone, especially now going back as people kind of re-examine his own history with opposition to uh, busing and the discussions, it, it is factually correct that there is a long, long, bloody history of racism in this country. And it's also politically correct. And I mean it as the, the term as in, Correct for politicians who want to be elected, that you kind of have to argue that we've moved past that. And you saw Obama doing that very effectively in 2000, 2000, 2007, 2008. Um, if people remember during the election, there was kind of the Jeremiah Wright brouhaha. And Obama's response largely had to be the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. Right. And obviously, a lot of terrible things have happened, but we're getting better, and there's always improvement, but there's also ways to work. and how obama attempted to square that circle is so fascinating looking back now because it's it was done in a way that was totally understandable at the time but made no one happy and because <laughs> it's fascinating when you talk to conservatives and they're like he was a race baiter," and you're like then you talk to liberals and they're like he didn't talk about race enough and i was like I-, I don't really know what to tell you but i also think that there is Something to be said for how Trump is not an aberration, even with it going back to Pat Buchanan's run in 1992, to kind of how Ron Paul ran in 2008. And I may be alone on this particular hobby horse, but I think we could learn a lot about you know, how Trump and kind of the view of Trumpism from Ron Paul's campaigns. But I also think that there is a sense that Biden is attempting to do something politically that does not entirely work factually.
2: And those are two different things. Well, let's take a break and then we'll, we'll talk about the difference.
5: Support for The Weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy.
0: You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
2: I think coming out of this, right, you can hear sort of three different critiques of the aberration view, right? One is about... Does Joe Biden fail to recognize the procedural radicalism of the modern Republican Party, right? And that's what I think like the PodSave guys were yes. really geared up about. And in that case, I, I mean, I I don't know. I don't know Joe Biden. I have to say like that criticism of Biden is so obviously true. And also Joe Biden was the fucking vice president. Like it cannot be that Joe Biden doesn't actually recognize the validity of that critique. Also, Joe Biden is a competent politician. You don't run for president by talking about how Mitch McConnell has like abused Senate process, right? Like that's just like that's just politics as far as I'm concerned. Then there's like this like racial grand arc of history where I think it is not clear like where Joe Biden stands on this. But again, it is not surprising that a candidate for president is not running on the basis of like revisionist accounts of American history. This is just like Biden is running for president the way everybody else has ever run for president. An interesting thing is that a handful of 2020 Democrats appear to have tried in this cycle to court African-American voters by running on like leftist critique of conventional narratives of American history, and it doesn't particularly seem to be working.
4: Well, it depends on working upon whom, because I think that, you know, if we're talking about African-American voters, there's a difference between me as an African-American voter and my late grandmother as an African-American voter, because my late, you know, when Biden, I think this was a couple weeks ago, he was like, you know, Jim Crow's on its way back. Sure, That's something to me. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? And then to my late Dear departed grandmother, that's something she's like, yes, absolutely. Well, well, here,
2: here's how I put it. Everybody who I know understands deep in their bones that what white writers and intellectuals say is not reflective of the mass opinion of white America. Right. But they sometimes seem to be confused. And think that what African-American writers and intellectuals say is representative of mass African-American opinion. Mm-hmm. When like normal people are not as politicized and geared up as writers and intellectuals are, like regardless of, of, of other stuff like that. But the third, the third critique of Biden, the one where I think there is a f- facticity to it, right, is just like – complacency about the state of American public policy in Barack Obama's second term, right? And like there is just a – because like adult human beings with functioning eyes and brains who do care a lot about politics just disagree about this, right? right? Like one view is that America in the second Obama term was a society of not like historically, but like right then, a society marked by hideous levels of economic inequality and massively unsustainable uh, environmental degradation that is desperately in need of, as Bernie Sanders put it, a political revolution that would somehow sweep aside the structural barriers to whatever, whatever, and you know. whatever the Green New Deal people want, you know, decarbonize the economy in a 12-year span, all that stuff. And, And another viewpoint, which like was Barack Obama's viewpoint, was Hillary Clinton's viewpoint, I think is Joe Biden's viewpoint, is that like... Not that like America had no problems at that point in time, but like it was pretty good. You had like a group of like classy, smart people running mm-hmm. the country, and what was really needed was for everyone to sort of clap for them and, right, right. and you like, know appreciate and, and you what could, a good job they were right, doing.
3: And and Americans who weren't professionally involved in politics could sleep at night, not worried about the state of their country. Exactly. Right. Yeah, I think I think that these are two like these are pretty well tied together actually, because you know I think that um, the question of are the writers and intellectuals representative of the views of the public? Like there's a little bit of relevance to the ideas of the kind of activist left in the context of a political – of a democratic primary that may not be true when we're talking about like other forms of political debate because this is – and this is something that I think I've been familiar with in terms of Latinos and that's different from black voters uh, for reasons I'm going to get into in a bit but – I'm used to this in in terms of thinking about, yeah, okay, the Latino activists who are going to be like weighing in on candidates during a Democratic primary are probably to the left of the Latino voters who are going to turn out in a general election in November. But the people who are going to be knocking on doors are closer to the views of the Latino activists who are going to be weighing in. And therefore, if you want to build a ground operation, if you want to actually succeed in a primary by mobilizing people to vote for you, you are going to need to appeal to the people who are to the left of the people you ultimately want to reach. Now, the thing about the Latino vote is that it is not a— traditionally high propensity voter base. Right. This is not true of African American voters who are yeah. specifically African American women, women who are extremely good at turning themselves out to the polls without needing 15 people knocking on their doors. Oh no. Um, so so I think that there is, you know, there is a relevant difference there in terms of, you know, the black women who are going to show up and vote in, you know, the South Carolina primary. They're not going to be pouring through pages and pages of web-based publications trying to figure out who they should vote for, they may have warm feelings toward Joe Biden. But like that gets into the idea that they are in favor of Joe Biden because they remember fondly a time when they didn't necessarily have to care about politics like above and beyond what they were already going to do. They didn't have to go to bed every night worrying about the state of America for reasons like above and beyond what they're used to worrying about.
4: Also, the concept of politics writ large because i think that if you talk to a lot of black women about specific issues um you know if you talk about schools if you talk about uh black maternal mortality which is an abject scourge in this country if you talk about you know healthcare, uh you to basically talk about the same issues that got suburban white women to the polls in 2018 those are similar issues that african-american women have been responding to and voting on for decades but i think this i i think that there's a sense that politics as a structure not individual political issues but politics as a structure is something that i think there are some voters um black and white and non-white together are you know people care about individual political issues but people do not want to have to care about politics right and I think that there's something to be said for we don't know, obviously, yet what will come to pass with regard to this competition among Democrats. And you are hearing from a lot of black women who are really into Kamala Harris, who have really responded to her. And also you know, Elizabeth Warren's campaign is doing the most specific outreach to African-Americans talking about issues that are of peak importance to African-Americans. But I think what we saw... Um, You know, going back to 2016, where you saw Bernie's campaign kind of fall apart in the South, largely because, you know, reaching out to African-American women as African-American women was something that was very difficult for the Sanders campaign to do because there was this idea like, well, you know, we all have problems and these problems can be solved by a political revolution where African-American women were like, that's generally not how this works for us. But I think that that's something that I'll be interested to see moving forward where Biden's campaign's ability to reach out on specific political issues because we talked you know we mentioned earlier that he doesn't really have like basically he is running currently on i'm joe biden i'm not trump you remember who i am i'm fine and like it's kind of i'm fine 2020 right
3: the the fascinating thing about this is like we were talking earlier about the kind of hashtag resistance the people who weren't necessarily at peak political engagement and getting them to to deal with the question of were they overly asleep in pre-2016 times. The question with reliable Democratic voters, whether that's African American women or some other bloc, is people who have historically seen the Democratic Party as the party that is fighting for their interests. How do you or is it a good thing, strategically speaking, to get them to acknowledge that those people weren't actually really doing a very good job of fighting for them, that they were kind of weak, that they were kind of too far to the right, that they weren't actually – that the reason that there are these big structural problems is because the people who you've always thought of in politics as the good guys
2: weren't actually any good. But see, this I think speaks to the, the left's haunting fear. Yes. Not about Joe Biden. But like about America yeah. <laughs> which 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 is that like people are very geared up about Donald Trump but actually are not passionate about left-wing no. political causes right. and right. That they are hoping that Donald Trump will essentially by accident allow yes. a geared up left-wing thing but something that I think about all the time. In politics, I think very telling is the incredible enduring popularity of Larry Hogan in Maryland, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, Phil Scott in Vermont, uh, Chris Sununu in New Hampshire. Because these are all states that we know to be lefter than average, right? There's a lot of stuff that will fly in Maryland that won't fly in Ohio or even necessarily Michigan, right? And Larry Hogan is like, He's a nice guy. Like he's not a monster. He doesn't do any crazy racist stuff. He doesn't have like flagrant corruption. Like he's a smart, competent public official. But like he's a Republican, right? Right. Like the sense in which he's a moderate Republican. And
3: and it's not even like he's a Republican who's particularly moderate on social issues. Like he's a Republican who was making a big deal out of a tough
2: on crime bill. Right. But I mean – Just even regarding – you don't need like a big specific critique of Larry Hogan just to say that he is a custodian of the status quo. If you wanted some big progressive idea that you thought might fly in Michigan but you weren't quite sure, but really it could fly in Maryland, right? Because like Maryland's solid blue. Like Larry Hogan is standing in your way. Mm -hmm. Larry Hogan is not going to raise taxes to make public services more generous, right? And the voters of Maryland, of a bluer than average state, seem quite happy with that state of affairs, right? If Larry Hogan started doing crazy, racist, corrupt stuff, he would become unpopular. Democrats could beat him, and that would unlock a progressive agenda Mm -hmm. that the voters of Maryland do not seem to particularly care for, right? And so the possibility is that Trump will be beaten by a Democrat who then doesn't have a Democratic Senate or is himself not that passionately progressive. And from the standpoint of the median voter, everything will now be fine, right? Right. That like you won't have crazy tweets in the White House. You won't be pushing a hideously unpopular Republican tax bill. But you also won't be pushing a Green New Deal or anything else that gets – that tempts the the backlash. You won't rerun 2009, 2010, that you'll just like have some cordial meetings. And it's not that Joe Biden is deluded and he thinks that by having whiskey with Mitch McConnell, he's going to get McConnell to agree to a huge progressive agenda. It's that – By not trying to push a huge progressive agenda, he and Mitch McConnell can have some nice drinks. They can agree that, like, this is America and we are proud of our flag and, like, say that racism is wrong in the sense that Nazis marching is bad, not necessarily in the sense that school desegregation is important. We're not going to get
4: into carceral racism or structural racism, but just kind of like I think—
2: Well, look, they had a bipartisan criminal justice reform bill, but right, but, like, the left's concern is that, like— Americans might be really happy with 2021 Biden administration.
3: And this is actually where Joe Biden getting into the race is likely to raise these issues to the fore in a way that it wasn't previously. Like. Uh, to finally, and I think that I personally deserve all the cookies for not turning this into an immigration episode yet.
2: But Thank finally, dug, <laughs> dig into immigration. Um, right, once we stop caging babies.
3: Right, ex- exactly. Like there's been, um, you know, I have certainly voiced this on the podcast. There has been a certain amount of frustration among like the immigration nerds out there that, with the admirable exception of Julian Castro, nobody has put out an immigration agenda in the 2020 field, and like from the conversations that i've had with the people who would be pushing democrats to put out 2020 agendas they're like you know what? it's still early like we're not we are not really going super hard on trying to get people to commit to specific policies and you know part of that is the fear that if they push people too far to the left there'll be some backlash but part of it is also like in the you know, they're talking about it. They they gather that there is something that a Democratic president can do. We can fill in the, the dots later. Now, the risk of that is exactly that you're going to, like, have a president who's going to say, well, now that Donald Trump isn't president anymore, we're not caging babies, and that the— Extent to which, you know, even the people who have been, quote unquote, woke to politics in like 2017, 2018 were horrified by things that were typical of immigration enforcement under President Obama. Like those things could continue because it's not something that has been super theorized among the Democratic base. But enter Joe Biden and Joe Biden, you know, making a point of saying, The Democratic Party has gone too far left on issues including immigration. Some of his early statements about like, you know, trying to portray the – you know, like legalization for DACA recipients as like the center, the the kind of median position in the Democratic Party, um, where, you know, which is kind of moving the debate on legalization substantially to the right. There is a possibility that this debate of what does a post-Trump immigration agenda look like will be more fleshed out because Joe Biden is in the race kind of forcing it into a little more contrast than it would be if everybody in the race were just— cruising along saying, this is not who we are, and then, you know, all the way up to the inauguration on January 21st, 2021, had never bothered to articulate who we should be instead.
4: Right. I think that there is a sense, and I'm glad I can't remember which one of you geniuses brought this up earlier, but this idea that like for the left, they're like, OK, you can take your opposition of Trump and turn that into pro-left policies, kind of like right. exhibits mm-hmm. pimp my ride. Like, hey, we heard you oppose Trump. Have you read Imbram Kendi's step right, from the right. beginning? <laughs> and like, but that's not how this is going to work for the majority of Americans. And, you know, I think that that's why you've seen, um, you know, to much the dismay of the Glenn's group. Greenwald and others of like kind of Bill Kristol showing up uh, in kind of mainstream left-leaning media as being kind of, you know, I'm a conservative, but I oppose Trump. And not really, you know, I've had had conversations with Bill Kristol about these issues. And he's basically been like, oh, no, I'm still a conservative. I'm really proud of the work that we did, um, you know, to help get George W. Bush into office and like kind of these ideas of like, no, 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 conservatism isn't the problem here. There's no issue with that. It's just that Trump isn't a conservative and that's why things are bad. But, you know, we've talked a lot and I've thought a lot about kind of this idea of this idealized center. Of, you know, that you could bring together, you know, resistance liberals and anti-Trump Republicans and come up with kind of like, well, we know what we oppose and that means that we know what we stand for, which is not the popular front kind of thing. Yes, but which is not exactly true, but it sounds really good. And I think that that's something that you're starting to see a little bit from kind of Biden, where it's not so much that he is appealing to centrism i think it's he's appealing to the idea of centrism and the idea of centrism is very popular even while people hate centrism
2: well i mean i i I think there's things people hate and there's things people don't hate right i think that a thing that activists on both sides tend to confuse is that american society not just right now, but for a number of years, has exhibited a high level of distrust of politicians and the political system. And when your politicians are out of power, it is easy for activists to mistake that distrust of the political system for a demand for radical policy change, right? When oftentimes it's exactly the opposite, that it's precisely because there is so little confidence in the political system, people are quite suspicious of bold reform schemes, whether that's now the government is going to drastically overhaul the healthcare sector or now I promise you that this corporate tax cut is going to lead to higher wages, all of these things. I mean, to to, to drag it back to immigration, right? Like, the premises of like the 2013 immigration compromise bill, right? It depends critically on you believing that the politicians who have been elected to represent you, in some sense, like know what they are doing. Yes. And when absolutely. they and when they got in the room and hashed this out, that like What's-his-name's extra border security idea? Corker Hoven. Corker Hoven. That, like, Corker and Hoven, that, like, the stuff they fought for is really going to address. Right. Border Hawks' concerns. But then also that, like, the Democrats, right, and, like, the Latino members that, like, they're really delivering, like, on their reform promises and and, and things like that. And people in a low-trust environment— are much friendlier to the kind of bipartisanship that is a bipartisan agreement to not do things than to a bipartisan agreement to like have a grand bargain. And, and so I think that's like the, – the unpopular centrism is like we're going to all get in a room together, cut Social Security, um, do grand bargains on everything. But I do think like the popular kind is like – Massachusetts under Charlie Baker. You just they're not doing anything.
3: Right. I mean I I would go so far as to say that the distrust of politicians and politics is a distrust of discord, right? Yeah. And like there is an extent to which obviously if you dislike discord, it means that you're cool with the status quo, which means you're probably a winner under the status quo. But the fact of the matter is that the electorate, especially some higher, certain higher propensity segments of the electorate, uh, are doing okay under the status quo. And, you know, the fundamental problem for Democrats in general and Democrats to the left of the rest of the party in particular are if the coalition you want to build is a coalition of the disenfranchised and disempowered, how on earth do you turn that into a coalition that is going to show up en masse defeating, you know, concerns of gerrymandering in the House and of the, you know, fact of the Senate that, like, Montana voters simply have greater representation than New York voters in the Senate. And, like, how do you deal with that in a way that leads to political success?
2: Yes. No, I mean, it's it's a very... I think it's like it's a tough, it's a tough time in general for progressives who I think are feeling. I, I don't want to like go too all in on like Joe Biden is riding high in the polls right now because you it's know
3: freaking th- early as hell because
2: there is a very ample chance uh, that 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 he will go down. Um, but I do think Jeb Bush, y'all. something that I do think is true is that in the Winter, the sort of lame duck winter after the twenty eighteen midterm.
3: I was really hoping you were just going to go all the way into in the winter of our discontent.
2: Ah, yes. In the way uh, there was a kind of a bubble of. Leftist self confidence that was built on a mix of Democrats doing well in the 2018 midterms, large scale um, popular mobilization, a sharp turn to the left in the intellectual discourse, and then a very high media profile for what's actually a quite small number of left wing freshman House Democrats, right? And then what we are seeing at the current phase of the primary is a Pull back to a kind of reality and like that's a reality in which Democrats don't have very good odds of securing a majority in the Senate in which the narrative of we're going to turn the clock back to how it was before Trump seems reasonably resonant with people even if – if Biden winds up going down, I guess this is what I would say. It will be either because of concerns about his age, concerns about his actual performance as a politician undermining the electability narrative or some stuff from his record that differentiates him from Obama. But it's clear that the like basic Obama nostalgia pitch like goes pretty well yes. and that the like we need a revolution is not like something that is obviously true to people. Uh, I I mean, it's obviously true to many people. It's just not like most people. And in politics, you kind of need most people.
1: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make
2: Okay, I have for you today Macroeconomic Effects of Debt Relief, Consumer Bankruptcy Protections in the Great Recession. This is by Adrian O'Clairet, Will Dobby and Paul Goldsmith-Pinkham. This is a paper I I came across while reporting out a different Joe Biden story about the 2005 bankruptcy bill. Although I want to note this paper is not about the 2005 bankruptcy bill. No, no, Um, no. Nor is it about Joe Biden. But it is about bankruptcy in general um and so basically they're looking at the fact that some states have more generous bankruptcy laws than others uh which means you know so if you get into financial trouble in a state with generous bankruptcy you can sort of walk away from a lot of your debts um it's not like free and clear. The fact that you filed for bankruptcy is going to make it harder for you to get loans in the future. Uh, but in lax bankruptcy states, like you can really stiff your creditors and just kind of like move on, uh, albeit without getting a small business loan two years down the road. In tighter bankruptcy laws, um, you know, your future wages will be garnished. You might have to um, like sell your house. It's it's Creditors get more money back, right? And the basic you know, thesis of sort of creditor-friendly bankruptcy laws is people will be able to get credit more easily in states like that, which will be good for growth, good for the economy in the long term. Uh, The case for lax bankruptcy is it's a kind of social insurance, right? If something bad happens to you, and particularly it's good because bankruptcy is very generic, right? There's unemployment insurance, there's health insurance, there's lots of specific things. But bankruptcy is like, look, you're in financial trouble, you walk away from your debts. So they're trying to say macroeconomically, how does this insurance work? And they find Works quite well. Um, States with generous bankruptcy terms uh, did a lot better in the Great Recession because people could get out from under their debts and like go back to spending their income on buying stuff.
3: I was not familiar with the argument in which this paper is uh, is positioning itself, so I think it's worth spelling out a little bit. Basically, the argument is part of the problem with the Great Recession was in the late two thousands the housing market collapses, which means the value of your home goes down and credit becomes less available, so people rationally responded to that by spending less money, which then had bad downstream effects for employment because there was less of a market for people to like remain employed selling things. Mm-hmm. Um, that like that's kind of the the backstory that fills in what Matt's talking about, right? That like you can understand the connection between bankruptcy and employment as if people are less constrained in their spending ability, they're doing more to prop up the local economies where they are. Um, something that I think is interesting here is the way that this paper is structured isn't just talking about kind of the formal value of oh, I was able to keep more of my assets because more of them fit under the cap of my state's law than would have if I'd been in, you know, a neighboring state or, like, if I'd been in Illinois instead of New York, that it also encompasses the idea that there's an informal benefit to this stuff, right? That, like, your creditors are going to hound you less in a state where they know they can get less out of you. And so looking at employment as, while it might seem indirect, is a good way to get at, okay, does this... This bankruptcy cap, not only, you know, like what not only what are the effects for people who actually go into bankruptcy proceedings, but does it help people in negotiations with creditors whether they actually go into bankruptcy or not?
2: Right, I mean exactly, and and you know, so the the basic logic of this, so they they sort of dif- differentiate effects on tradable and non tradable employment. Please explain um, tradable and non tradable. So non-tradable this is an important. I th- I would say there is a growing economic emphasis on this. Uh, so if you work in a in a tradable sector, classically that's like a factory right? That makes durable goods. Um, And it's tradable because your cars could be shipped abroad, but it's also tradable in the sense that your cars compete with imported cars from abroad, right? People used to talk about manufacturing, right? But they've shifted to tradable uh, because, for example, if you work at Facebook, that's also tradable, right? Facebook operates internationally. Uh, Big banks operate in a tradable sector where financial services kind of flow across state lines. Um, Then other things are not tradable. Uh, The sort of classics of this are like health, education, restaurants, right, where you are providing services to the local population. Um, I never know exactly how this works in micro, micro detail in some boundary cases. Like what we do at Vox is like tradable in principle, but not really traded in practice right like our digital media content obviously you can download it in foreign markets um but like really if you look at the way the business works it's entirely US focused mm-hmm. and like uh, uh, people who sponsor this show are like not trying to target listeners in Ireland right. even though Irish people are i Please invite you to, to listen yeah, to the no, show. No, no. no,
3: Irish people should totally advertise on this show. <laughs>
2: but yes, but like broadly speaking, like manufacturing software, fancy services are tradable, um, education, healthcare, care, uh, food and beverage service, and like, you know, haircuts, stuff like that are non-tradable. So it's it sometimes it's good as a sort of a gut check on some of these economic trends, right? And so the basic logic of this bankruptcy thing is when people are not being hounded by debt collectors, they have a little bit more uh, money in their pockets to spend, uh, you know, like at the local restaurant, right? Which creates employment in the restaurant sector, but then also the income like recycles. It means that the waiters at the restaurant are getting more tips and like they can get their hair cut and and so on and so forth. But the tradable sector is not impacted by these kind of flows, right? Like whether the car factory shuts down or not has nothing to do with the local. I I mean, it's a a cause of local economic outcomes, but not a consequence of them. So they find that uh, generous bankruptcy helps with non-traded employment. employment does not help with traded employment, which I think is like supposed to increase your confidence that this isn't just like... Goofy statistics, right? But and, the, and I think there's the a real thing, causal theory. The other
3: important thing with the with confidence is that they show that there's no difference between states with generous bankruptcy laws and those with less generous bankruptcy laws pre 2007. Right. That like this isn't a matter of there's greater or lesser moral hazard as a general rule. It's a question of when something when something happens that makes it a lot more likely for people to go into bankruptcy. What you know are there then differential impacts?
4: Yeah, my question is also what what does this mean for other types, you know, we've there've been a lot of conversations about student loan forgiveness and some of those arguments is like you could take the money that you were paying your student loans with and pay money for something else that mm-hmm. isn't, you know, Awful and terrible and student loan debt related. But I, I'd be fascinated to see how this data corresponds to kind of just general the, – the concept of debt
2: relief more generally. Right. I think this links to the themes we've been talking about, about sort of complacency, right? If you, if you read into the depths of this paper, right, you, you will see that like the key – elements of the model have to do with the fact that the country was in a severe recession, that the Fed had set interest rates to zero but was not interested in pursuing additional aggressive measures, right? And and I think that a a lesson that we will come to learn once we read like all the white papers and, and whatever is that the depths of the Great Recession created an environment in which a lot of left-wing economic policy ideas are good and true, right? And that like broad debt relief, for example, boosted economic outcomes. If we had just written off student debt or if we hadn't made the 2005 change that made it harder to to eliminate, the country would have been better off, right? If we had let more underwater homeowners walk away from their debts, we would have been better off. If more states had lax bankruptcy laws, we would have been better off. And it's not a coincidence that, like, a whole cohort of young people for whom this was the formative experience of their lives now have a, like, gut level, like, leftist view of the economy, right? But we are moving out of that world into a world in which more conventional types of considerations will apply. And as you were saying, Dara, right, they find that before 2007, like, this effect was not present, right, and there was no benefit to just having generous bankruptcy terms. And we are going to be, I, I mean, whether we're at it this year or it'll take to next year, or whatever, it is a little hard to say. But like we're going to be in an economy soon where it's like your boring, annoying intro economics textbook is much more applicable. And like there's no like magic free lunch where you can just let people off their debts and it creates extra jobs. We're not doing Jubilee 2020? Probably not. I mean, the time for it... I, the time for the political revolution really was 2009, right? in my opinion.
3: Yeah, you know, it's very easy to see revolutions in retrospect. The reason that the 2013 immigration bill is going to be so fascinating in retrospect is that 2013 appears to now have been the high watermark for how settled the unauthorized immigrant population was. Like, it's always easier to see what the right time for big change would have been.
2: And that is America. <laughs> Okay, so um, thanks, guys. Uh, Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors and to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And The Weeds will return on Friday.